1 Corinthians chapter 1. This past week I've been listening to the latest Mars Hill audio journal. And in it, Ken Myers in the introduction sort of explains how he chooses the guests uh, that he interviews uh, for this bi-monthly journal. And he said that he was looking for those who dealt with cultural forms and institutions. And he went on to say that oftentimes the way we look at culture is we think that ideas shape culture. So ideas are abstract. Culture is concrete, tangible. So you start with the abstract ideas and then you move on to culture. But he made the suggestion that it not only works from ideas to culture, but that culture itself also shapes ideas. He made the statement that... um, The way we believe shapes the way we live. I think we would agree with that. But he went on to say that the way that we live shapes the way that we believe. I don't know that we normally think in those terms. And as someone who has just come from another country, from the Philippines, and I've just been struck by certain differences culturally. Um, When I was in the Philippines, I was asked to speak at a church, at my brother-in-law's church, and I spoke twice. And I always find myself somewhat apprehensive about doing that because the cultural setting is different. You might say, well, wait a minute, David, you know, the gospel transcends culture. No, yes, it does. But at the same time, where we are in our thinking is affected by where we are in the culture. And a couple ideas come uh, to mind. Uh, For example, the idea of family. In this country, I think, is much more narrow when you talk about family. Growing up in the Philippines, I remember just being struck by the fact that people knew their third and fourth cousins. I wouldn't know, I think, any of my first cousins if they walked in the building today. I mean, our, our idea of family is very nuclear and much more uh, narrowly defined. Or riding public transportation in the Philippines, which people do more than they tend to do here in Los Angeles, particularly on a Jeep, if you get in last... You have to hand your money to another passenger who will hand it to another passenger who will give it to the driver. And there's, there's this a sense of community, even on this small vehicle, that it's not that I have to do it for myself. Other people help me in the process. Or traffic. And my wife says that I romanticize it. But uh, in the Philippines, there's almost this ballet. I mean, if you saw it, you'd say it looks like a can of worms. But there's sort of this ballet... Of, I'm still not sure why they have lines on the road because no one seems to follow them. But everyone seems to give, you know, live and let live. And for me, it's quite amazing versus the way we are here in the States. You know, if you come in my lane of traffic, I'm going to hit you. This is my lane. Okay? Don't come over here. This is mine. Well, that type of, the way we live affects the way we believe. And so our way of believing becomes much more I think, selfish, much more about the individual. Remember Claudette, uh, I think a year or so before she passed away, she, she mentioned to us once in a conversation, she said, have you noticed you know, that, that people keep saying my a lot? Like instead of saying, yeah, go on into the house, they say, you can go into my house. Or instead of saying, look in the refrigerator, yeah, you can look in my refrigerator. Well, yeah, the way we live informs the way we believe. Now, why do I mention this? Because the Corinthians had come up with some really wacky ideas when it came to Christian theology. 
And I'm convinced it came from the way that they lived. And I'm not talking, let me be clear about this. When I say the way that we live affects the way we believe, I'm not talking about sin, you know, doing wrong things, per se. Because the more we get into sin, it seems the more comfortable we are with sin. I'm not talking about that. Just about the ethical decision, or not just the ethical decision, the day-to-day mundane decisions we make, uh, the way that we live affect the way that we believe. And this is certainly the case with the Corinthian believers who had become so enamored with the idea of wisdom to the point that they turned their back on Paul and they turned their back on what he preached. What he preached had become an embarrassment to them because it didn't fit in within their culture. So how do you correct such people? How do you correct people whose lives, the way they live, have changed the way they believe? Well, what Paul does, and we'll look at it today, is he begins by telling them who they really are. Then he tells them what the problem is. And then he begins to restate the message as it truly is to be understood. And that is the gospel. That is, he tries to reclaim it from the corrupted form that they have reduced it to. Who are these people to whom Paul is writing? Follow along, if you would, as I read. Uh, We'll begin in verse number one. We looked at verses one and two last week, but verses one through nine. And this gives us a sense of what Paul is telling the Corinthians about themselves. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, in all your speaking and in all your knowledge, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you strong to the end, so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, is faithful. One, one brief word before I jump in. Uh, we're going through 1 Corinthians. We're not going verse by verse, but rather we're doing it thematically. So there are a lot of things I won't touch on, and if you have questions afterwards, please uh, feel free to bring them up. Paul is writing to the church of God in Corinth, the Corinthian believers. And his introduction, I think, makes it clear that even though there is much in this letter as we go through that would make us doubt whether or not these people are even Christians, for Paul there is no doubt. These are the people of God. He is clear about this. They are the church of God in Corinth. They are called to be holy just as Paul was called to be an apostle. Verse number one, Paul says, listen, I was called to be an apostle. You are called by God to be holy. And not only that, together with all those everywhere who call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Paul gently reminds them, you aren't the only Christians in the world. Number one, you are Christians. Number two, you are not the only Christians in the world. You belong to a much larger picture. And the first hymn that we uh, had today in our worship, God of Abraham praise. And throughout that hymn, there's this sense of we belong to something much larger than ourselves. 
Paul will, throughout the letter, make mention of the church at large. He does it here at the introduction, I think, just to sort of gently remind them there are other Christians in the world. They are not alone in the world. God is not their God alone. The Lord Jesus does not belong to them alone. He reinforces this, I think, throughout the introduction. First of all, he says, grace and peace to you. In the ancient world, letters started this way. First of all, the person writing, so Damon Woods, to whoever he's writing, to Mrs. Brown, and then a form of greeting. And the greeting in Greek would be kairen, which would be greetings. Paul sort of plays with it there. Instead of saying kairen, he says karis, which means grace. And then he brings in the Jewish tradition of saying shalom, peace. Grace and peace to you. Grace is what God has done. Peace refers to the benefits that we experience in our lives. Paul says to the Corinthians something really quite amazing. At this point it may not seem so, but by the time we get to 1 Corinthians, it will be. He says, I always thank God for you. Trust me when I tell you, as we go through this, you will find it amazing that Paul can thank God every once in a while for them, let alone always for these people. But he does give thanks for them. And why does he do this? Verse number 9, I think, is the key to this whole introduction. God is faithful. As God's people, we, not, we may not be the people we should be. In fact, we generally are not. The Corinthians were not the kind of Christians they should have been. But God is faithful. In this introduction, Paul brings up things that will come up later in the letter. First of all, the matter of gifts, that they have knowledge and wisdom. And second of all, the idea of the second coming, which, if you look at this introduction, Paul is very clear has not yet happened. I think the Corinthians believe that it has, and that's why they're really off when it comes to their theology. But this is the introduction. Paul is writing to people who are God's people. They are so off, not only in their beliefs, but in their practices. I mean, the stuff that these people do, well, Paul will say not even pagans do the kind of things you're doing. And yet Paul says, you're God's people. God called you. And I always thank God for you. Okay? Then what is the problem? What is the problem the basis, if you wish, for what Paul, uh, why he writes this letter. You know, I think if you were to ask the average Christian who knows a little about the New Testament, what was the Corinthian problem? I think more likely than not, they would say divisions. The Corinthian church was divided. It seems to be the best known of all the Corinthian problems. And I think it's one of those things that we sort of instinctively identify with, because since the Reformation... The church has been marked by divisions. You know, we call them denominations. Okay, but let's face it, they are divisions. Um, and so, I think we approach this particular part of 1 Corinthians, which is critical to the whole book, and we misunderstand the issue. I really think that we, we miss the point here. Follow along, if you would, as I read verses 10 through 17. I appeal to you, brothers... And that's important. Notice, they are brothers, and he does not demand, he appeals to them. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? I am thankful that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized into my name. And then in parenthesis, yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So, I were to ask you now, what is the Corinthian problem? You would say divisions. These people are divided. But as I said, I think we've misunderstood the issue, at least for two reasons. Because it is the first thing that Paul mentions right off the bat, people tend to look at the rest of 1 Corinthians in this light. In chapter 8, eating meat offered to idols. In chapter 11, the Lord's Supper. Uh, chapter 12, spiritual gifts. Chapter 14, confusion and worship. All these things... We tend to think, oh, the Corinthians were divided on these issues. And yet, if you were to read these passages, there's no indication that there were, in fact, factions disagreeing on this. They all pretty much seem to be on the same page when it came to their bad theology. Secondly, although the Corinthians seemed divided over which leader they followed... There is no indication that they were divided over issues as such. Um, it doesn't mean that they weren't, but we don't find it in this letter. The divisions that we find seem to be along personality lines, but not along theological lines. And I think beyond that, I find it fascinating that Paul brings it up here. He doesn't mention it again in the rest of the letter. If this is the big problem, why doesn't Paul mention it the rest of the letter? I'm sure you know this, but just to make it clear, even though these people claim to follow certain people, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, Christ, there is no hint whatsoever that these men had anything to do with it. Paul is the one who started the church, and after he left, Apollos came and worked there for a while. It may be that Peter, Cephas, came to Corinth, because in chapter 9, Paul will write about him, as though the Corinthians know all about him. Um... But there's no indication that, that Apollos started a faction, that, that Peter started a faction. In fact, quite the reverse, the opposite, seems to be the case. Paulus, Apollos was known as a, an eloquent speaker, and maybe certain people liked the way uh, Apollos spoke. Um, I find it fascinating when we get to the end of 1 Corinthians in chapter 16. Uh, Paul writes, Now about our brother Apollos. I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to do so. Okay, so apparently Apollos didn't start his own club in the Corinthian church. In fact, the last thing that Apollos wants to do is to go back to that mess in Corinth. So the men had nothing to do with this. This is something that the people have done on their own. Certain issues emerge, though, in these I follow Peter, I follow Apollos scenario. First of all, wisdom seems to be 
the central theme. In the first three chapters of 1 Corinthians, wisdom comes up a number of times. In Paul's writings, he uses wisdom, Sophia, and wise, Sophos, 45 times. Just some numbers, but 45 times in all of Paul's writings. 28 of them, that's more than half, are in 1 Corinthians. 26 of them are in the first three chapters. Okay. So almost half of the time, well, more than half of the time that Paul writes about wisdom and being wise, it's in these first three chapters. This is the critical issue in this particular passage. We also have the issue of boasting, that people are bragging. It seems very much to be tied to the, the matter of wisdom. And lastly, Paul, throughout this letter, will defend his ministry. And I would argue that Paul is defending his ministry because it is the whole church against Paul. It isn't the Paul faction, the Apollos faction, uh, the Peter faction, the Christ faction. No, it's the whole Corinthian church against Paul. And you might say, well, Damon, I, I don't see that. How do, how do you get that? Well, look again at the passage. What is it that they say? I follow Apollos. I follow Paul. The emphasis is not on the person they follow. It's on the individual. Look at me. I'm a follower of Peter. Look at me. And the reason I come up with this is because why would you say, I follow Christ? Isn't everybody following Jesus Christ? So the emphasis is not on Christ. It's not on Paul, Apollos, or Cephas. The emphasis is on the individual. Look at me. I'm a follower of this person. I'm wise. And that's where the boasting comes in. So, Peter, Paul, even Jesus Christ, that's almost secondary. The focus is on the individual. Look at me. I am a follower. And how do you deal with this? Well, Paul begins gently. I appeal to you, brothers. He doesn't demand. He doesn't distance himself. He doesn't say, listen, you yahoos, I want you to get your act together. They are brothers, my brothers. He wants them that they might say the same thing, that they would be knit together in the same mind and have the same opinion. Not uniformity, but unity. See, Paul has heard the story from the household of Chloe. And as best we can tell, Chloe was not from Corinth. Chloe had passed through town. Chloe was an outsider. And when he came to Ephesus, he said, Listen, Paul, you will not believe what's going on the church in Corinth. Paul is told by outsiders of this self-centered spirit, the sense of wisdom that the Corinthians had developed. And it is against Paul. Paul will deal with this in the first six chapters and then, in chapters 7 through 16, he will deal with the letter they sent him. Now that they are so wise, they, they now have a new understanding of the gospel. And Paul will have to answer them point by point, beginning in chapter 7. I think that verse number 12 is probably the key to this letter. I've mentioned it already. When people say, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. 
The focus is, the real emphasis is on the individual. Look at me. Not on the leader, but on the follower. And in doing this, they have taken the attention away from where it belongs, and that is on the cross of Jesus Christ. A side note here. The whole thing of baptism I find really interesting in this particular chapter. Paul seems very, very... He doesn't want to talk about having baptized anyone. In fact, he goes on to say, hey, I'm not here to baptize. Which really sounds quite strange. If you think about it, in the book of Acts, on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people were saved and baptized the very same day. Micah read to us about Cornelius. The Spirit comes on them. They are baptized the very same day. One would think if Paul was following the apostolic pattern, Paul would have somebody converted and baptized on the very same day. Paul seems very, very hands-off when it comes to the baptism issue. And I, I love uh, verse number 16, this parenthesis, like his memories are like, oh yeah, yeah, you know, I, I did baptize some other people. When we get to chapter 15, we will see that the Corinthians have a rather strange view of baptism. I think this is why Paul is distancing himself. The Corinthians actually practice baptism for the dead. It's the only place in the Bible it's mentioned. Uh, they see baptism in a magical way. All of this to get away from the one thing that is the greatest embarrassment to them of all. And that is Jesus Christ crucified. The gospel is for them. Forget that it was humiliating to Jesus to be crucified. It's humiliating to his followers to acknowledge, yes, we pray to someone, we pray through someone to God, someone who died by crucifixion. It's, it's just too embarrassing. It's too humiliating. And so they've conveniently put that aside. I follow Paul. I follow Peter. Guess who baptized me? You know, baptism becomes essential because they don't want to talk about that, which is so embarrassing to them. And Paul basically says, listen, if you move beyond the cross... You're not in gospel territory anymore. You're not talking about the Christian faith anymore. So what is God's message? What is the gospel? Follow along, if you would, as I read verses 25, I'm sorry, verses 18 to 25. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written... And here he quotes from Isaiah 29. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. The message of the cross stands in contrast 
two words of human wisdom, as we find in verse number 17. Just a linguistic note here. The word logos is used for both. The logos of the cross, the logos of human wisdom. On the one side, you have those who are perishing, those who are not Christians, and when they hear the message of the cross, it's, it's foolishness. To the Greeks, it is madness. It's insanity. You mean, you mean that you believe someone, in someone who died on a cross, crucified by the Romans, you believe he is your savior? To them, that is foolishness. On the other side, those who believe, this is the power of God. This is how God has saved us from hell and has saved us from our sins. In verse 19, Paul quotes from the Old Testament, from Isaiah, to make his point. Um, God chose the gospel, as he did, in part to set aside or to destroy human wisdom. You see, it is the foolishness of human beings that we think we know more than God. That we think we can outwit or outthink God. Or that God is as smart as we are, that is, God thinks the way that we do. In many ways, we're childlike in this sense. Uh, I remember my sister when she was in, I think, third grade. And we were talking about this when I was just back at home in the Philippines. When she was in third grade, uh, her teacher had sent a note home to my mother that she was not doing well in school. And so my sister wrote a note back to the teacher and signed it Mrs. Woods. And she was shocked when the teacher knew it wasn't from my mom. How did she figure that out? Well, to this day, if you compared my sister's handwriting with my mom's handwriting, it's a no-brainer, but imagine her in third grade. But that seems to be the way we are with God. That we think that we are on God's level. That God thinks the way that we do. And it's shocking to us when God does something that doesn't really seem to make sense to us. For Paul, the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy here in Isaiah 29 is the crucifixion. God doing things radically different than we would ever do it. It goes beyond the wisdom of of mere human beings. The wise man in Greek society would be the thinker or philosopher, the scholar. Uh, In the NIV it has scholar. In the King James it has scribe. I think this actually refers to Jewish rabbis. So remember, he talks about the Jews, miraculous signs, Greeks, wisdom. So I think the scholar, that's the Greek philosopher. Uh, The scribe, that's the Jewish rabbi. He's, He's hitting both camps. The philosopher of this age, the person who likes to debate, has God not made has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world, the wisdom that thinks it knows more than God. Now God has not made it to look foolish; He has made it foolish because it is contrary to Him. In verse number twenty-one, Paul states a proposition that he and the Corinthians, I think, would agree on. The world did not come to know God through its own wisdom. As messed up as the Corinthians are, I think they would agree on this. That the only way that we know about God is that God has revealed himself. God has spoken. 
even in the Greek mythology, the gods had revealed themselves. I think they would agree with that. You can't start from human beings and get to God. You won't discover God that way. The only way to know that God exists is that God starts and he comes over to us. That I think he can safely assume he and the Corinthians agree on. Even in our wisdom, we cannot come to know God. And here, Paul doesn't simply mean knowing that God exists, as he talks about in Romans 1. But to understand what God is doing in the world. Now, if we can't know, then how do we come to know? Well, God reveals it. God reveals it by his spirit. And Paul will deal with this more in chapter 2. But, but why? And here one almost feels tempted to be like a five-year-old. But why? Why is it this way? Well, in many ways we are like five-year-olds, I think, in the presence of God. God has done things his way so that we can't take the credit for it. Do you remember the story of Adam and Eve? They sinned. God kicked them out of the garden. God did something else. And most people sort of forget this part of the story. He kicked them out of the garden and then he put cherubim around the garden to make sure they couldn't come back in. Because if they got back into the Garden of Eden, they could eat from the Tree of Life and live forever. And God says, you're not coming in on your own terms. The only way that you can come to me is on my terms. So much so that he put cherubim with a flashing sword, a flaming sword, flashing back and forth. You're not coming in here on your own. That has been God's plan all along. Because you know what? If we could come to God on our own, who would, who would take credit? Who would we want to praise? Who would we want to worship? I belong to Paul. I belong to Apollos. You see, their thinking has gotten so turned around that they're thinking about themselves. By the way, I, I think this is sort of natural for human beings, but we certainly see it in the Corinthian case. God has created the gospel the way that he has so that we cannot take credit for it, that it is only by his power and his grace that we come to know who Christ is. In the meantime, this message that God has created, it sounds, sounds like insanity. It sounds like foolishness to those who do not believe. So what God has done is he has chosen a foolish message. It isn't really foolish. It just looks that way to the world. So that those who believe in it, and not simply mentally saying, oh yes, I accept that, but those who commit themselves to it, it is the result of the work of the Holy Spirit. But this isn't the way we want it. We are like the Jews. We want to see a sign. Come on, do a trick. We want a miraculous sign. Something concrete. Or maybe we're like the Greeks. We want wisdom. We want some philosophy, something that will sort of stretch and exercise our brains. Because after all, think about it. If someone were to ask you, what are the qualities about God? Talk to an atheist. What do you think are two qualities of God? I think people would say all-powerful and all-wise. He knows everything. He can do anything. Miraculous signs, wisdom. Those are the two things human beings look for. 
And how did God respond? He sent his son to live among us and then to be put to death as a common criminal. It's not what the Jews expected and it's not what the Greeks could accept. To the Jews, it's a scandal, a stumbling block. To the Greeks, it's sheer madness. They want wisdom. What they fail to realize is that God has, in fact, provided a gospel of power and wisdom. It is through his power that we are reconciled to God. It is only through his power that human beings who are in rebellion against God can be reconciled to him. And it is in this way, it is wisdom because salvation doesn't come from us. It comes from God. You see, in the cross, God has outsmarted his creatures. He has nullified their wisdom. So that if anyone comes to faith in Christ, they cannot say, you know, I went to school and, and I, I studied a lot and I found out I have a high IQ and that's why I became a Christian. No. No, it is not through the wisdom of this world. It is in the cross that God outsmarted his creatures. It is in the cross that he overpowered his enemies by forgiving them. By his grace. In this part of the argument, verse number 25, I think, is the key. Look, if you would, at verse number 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. This is the verse that the Corinthians need to take to heart if they're going to get back on track. It's what they need to hear. But you know what? It's what we need to hear today. One writer put it this way. We simply cannot abide the scandal of God's doing things his way without our help. It just rubs us the wrong way. The idea that God doesn't need us to accomplish his purposes. But it's the truth. It is the truth of the gospel. It's a truth that the Corinthians had turned their backs on. And therefore they're off track. And now Paul must bring them back on track. And he begins by reminding them of who they are and what the gospel truly is. Today we celebrate communion and I hope that it will be a reminder to us first of all of the scandal of the cross. This is not the way we would have done it. But secondly, this is the way that God did it. He sent his son to die as a common criminal that we might have eternal life. Let's pray together. Father, we are in fact affected by our environment, our culture. It affects the way that we believe. We see it in the Corinthians. Perhaps we're not so quick to see it in ourselves. But today, as we remember your son's death, may it remind us that this is not the way we would have done things. But it is the way that you chose to do things. We cannot take the credit for being your children. 
it is only through your power that we can have peace with you and be reconciled to you. May we treasure these thoughts as we remember your son's death today. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Brian and Dan, would you come? It's interesting that the one passage outside of the Gospels that deals with the Lord's Supper at length is here in 1 Corinthians. And hopefully, based on what we've talked about today, you can see that if they were messed up about the Gospel, they would also have problems when it came to the Lord's Supper. And and Paul must correct them in this area. But in the process of doing so, he gives us the formula, if you wish, uh, the pattern that the early church followed for communion. It's found here in 1 Corinthians 11. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, 
you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you stand, please, as we sing the doxology together? May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.